here it comes again, lunch. Will it be the same old, same old? Or are you ready to take a vacation from the ordinary with the new Jamaican Jerk Turkey Sub at Firehouse Subs? Freshly sliced smoked turkey breast, craveably sweet mustard sauce, and a hint of Caribbean seasoning. Just $5.55 for a medium. Save time. Order the new Jamaican Jerk Turkey Sub on the Firehouse Subs app. Firehouse Subs. Enjoy more subs. Save more lives. Participating locations. Limited time only. Plus tax. Prices may vary for delivery. This podcast is a member of the Voices of Wrestling podcasting network. Visit VoicesOfWrestling.com to hear the rest of our great podcasts, as well as show reviews, columns, opinions, and updates across the world of wrestling. You are listening to the Voices of Wrestling podcast with your hosts... Joe Lanza. X-Out, go listen to some boring podcast where they're, where they're afraid of their own shadow. Okay? Don't listen to Joe Lanza. Because Joe Lanza's not changing. And Rich Cranch. <laughs> Give me a name. I want to. Who delivers this guy in a big spot? <laughs> Joe, don't yell at me. In the, in the big spot. Who delivers better than this guy? <laughs> Stop yelling at me. I agree. You. You are listening to your favorite Professional Wrestling Podcast, the Voices of Wrestling flagship podcast. I, of course, am internationally acclaimed broadcast journalist, as heard on BBC Radio. The most compelling voice in wrestling media. I am Joe Lanza and uh, Rich Krejci. Too good for the flagship this week. You know Sassy Krejci, he's off hobnobbing with John Pollock and, and Wei Ting and you know, doing guest spots over at Post Wrestling. Too good for the flagship. We got too good Rich Krejci blowing off his obligations to go rub elbows with the Post Wrestling guys. That's all right. We'll get a show done. Don't worry about it, Krejci. Lanzo will find a way. So we'll piece together a flagship today. We'll do a nice job. Get you guys all caught up on what's going on this week in wrestling. There'll be two segments to this flagship. Later on in the show, a detailed deep dive into the business side of Japanese pro wrestling this year. Detailed breakdowns of New Japan Pro Wrestling, Pro Wrestling Noah, All Japan Pro Wrestling, Wrestle One, Dragon Gate, DDT, 0-1, Big Japan, without fear, favor, or bias, which means a lot of people are going to be upset, because you know those touchy Pearl fans, a lot of times they can't handle the truth, and not all of my research that I have uncovered, all the data that I've uncovered in my research, I should say, is positive news for a lot of these promotions. Some of these promotions are doing very well and are up. Some of these promotions are not doing so well. And some of them are simply flat. But we'll dive in deep. That'll be the second half of the show. And if you're into the business side of wrestling, you're not going to want to miss that. If you're a big Pearl fan, you're not going to want to miss that. A lot of interesting angles and a lot of research went into it. So should be a good segment. But the first half of the show... 
We're going to bounce around the world here and just talk about some news. There's a lot going on in wrestling. There's a lot going on this weekend. It seems like every weekend there's a lot going on. I mean, it's crazy. Last weekend was crazy. This weekend has the G1 double shot in Osaka. It's got Triple Mania. The weekend after that is SummerSlam weekend, and there's, you know, SummerSlam, Ring of Honor, the Budokan Hall, Triple Shot, as we wrap up the G1. And then a couple weeks after that, we've got, you know, the Monster Day on 831 that has Royal Quest, that has Double or Nothing, and the UK Takeover Show, all on the same day, one after another. So, it's been a wild summer. It'll continue to be a wild summer. And we'll get you caught up on everything that's going on in wrestling. Which is some random news and notes. As I record this, AEW has sold out their television debut in Washington, D.C. They put the tickets on sale earlier today. They sold out, depending on who you ask, in anywhere from two minutes... To two hours, but the tickets are gone. As usual, when it comes to AEW tickets going on sale, the world loses their mind. So you have people complaining that they're stuck in the queue, or they're getting booted out of the queue, or they can't get tickets, or they're saying tickets are sold out, but the tickets aren't really sold out. There's still tickets available. People have tickets in their in their fucking cart, and then they don't buy them, and then more tickets. Bottom line is, by the time you hear this, they're all gone. And, again, there'll be a lot of new information by the time you listen to this, but as I record, seemingly they will be able to put a few more tickets on the market at some point when they account for their camera setup and those sorts of things. But, another sellout. Now look, this is becoming a trend for AEW. They sold out Double or Nothing. They sold out All Out. They sell out their television debut. They ran two shows in Florida. Uh, Fighter Fest, Fight for the Fallen, those shows did not technically sell out, but they, they did very well. So they've sold out three of their first, you know, five attempts at shows. And uh, you want to throw All In in there last year if you want to, go right ahead. Uh, same group of guys, minus Khan. And, you know, the two smaller shows, the uh, Clash of Champions type shows that they aired on Bleach Report Live also, you know, sold a good number of tickets, if not uh, complete sellouts. So, look... There's, there's there's no other way to spin it. AEW has been a massive financial success to this point. Or business success. Shouldn't say financial success. Uh, that's a different thing. Uh, but, you know, uh, as far as selling tickets, they've been a success. I'm sure they'll lose money in the first year anyway with all the startup costs and things like that. So you, you have to stop short of saying a financial success. But traditional pro wrestling business, they're doing very well. And, you know, I don't think it's any surprise that the DC show sold out. It's a historic show. And what this group of guys do almost better than anyone is sell people on the idea that they're going to see history. They've got that down pat. They've got their fan base conditioned to understand and to think uh, that, you know, they're raging against the machine. We're going up against... Uh, you know, the big guy that we will not name, but that we will, you know, 
strongly insinuate towards anytime we get a chance, which is the right move, by the way. Anyone who thinks AEW needs to pump the brakes on responding to the lobs that WWE wrestlers or that Vince McMahon himself throws their way is lost. You absolutely lean into all of that and leverage it. There's no reason not to. I don't want to hear about, oh, you need to do your own thing. Don't worry about them. All this pet. No. No, you leverage that. The AEW fan base gets off on that. Why would you not leverage it? As I said they should do last week on this show, they have leaned into the blood and guts quote from Vince McMahon, which is absolutely the right move. I don't know if you, you've seen the tremendous, and I mean tremendous, sit-down pre-tape promo by Cody Rhodes leaning into blood and guts. Where he says, yeah, they're right. Wrestling is blood and guts. That's what it's all about. Heart and fight and blood and guts. Just tremendous. And you know, the irony here is that Khan, Tony Khan has said they're not going to do blood on TV. They're not even going to do the blood on TV. Meanwhile, WWE did blood on TV this week. Vince McMahon is just, you know, we all know the games he's playing. But I, I don't think they're intentional. I think he's, he's uh, you know, he's just a hypocritical, mentally unstable dude who truly only sees things one way. So he's got Seth Rollins out there spitting up blood on TV, but he's complaining about blood and guts and gory crap that the other guys are doing, who, by the way, have not done that on TV and will not do that on TV. We'll see if they go back on that promise. And here's the other thing. Who's to say that Turner is dead set against a little bit of blood in their TV? Who said, Has Turner said that? Do we have any definitive proof that advertisers are running from AEW? Because Dustin Rhodes did an old school blade job on a pay-per-view? We have none of that. Vince does blood and guts and gory crap on pay-per-view all the time. So I don't think Turner or advertisers are going to fall for Vince's gotten-to nonsense on that quarterly call. Wake me up when AEW are slicing open heads on Wednesday nights and we have advertisers running from the show. Otherwise, Cody, Tony, lean into it. Every time Vince McMahon says something in your direction, lean into it. He's giving you free publicity. And your fans eat up the idea that it's a war. Whatever success that ECW had under Paul Heyman, whatever heights they climbed to, beating WCW on pay-per-view, 
getting on network television on TNN, um, you know, drawing 5,000 fans in Buffalo or whatever, whatever heights they got to, largely came from Paul Heyman positioning ECW as us against the other guys. While the other two were having a wrestling war, okay, Paul Heyman positioned himself against everyone. And it worked as well as it was going to work and took them as far as they were going to go because wrestling fans eat this shit up. We love it. Don't be one of these nerds, one of these absolute dorks who's out there saying that, you know, who's whining about AEW and, and, and Cody smashing the throne and talking about blood and guts or one of these guys complaining that, you know, the other side. It, it, embrace it. This is a lot of fun. And it's perfectly okay to pick a side and root for him. Fuck it. I don't know why you'd pick WWE. They're terrible. They haven't been good in forever. I'm just hoping it motivates them to get better. But with Roman Reigns having scaffolding fall on top of him this week on TV, and then standing up and just brushing it off his shoulder and walking away in one of the worst TV angles you'll ever see, and news that Vince McMahon is rewriting SmackDown as it's going on, despite the fact that he was going to, quote, get out of the weeds, I'm not confident they're going to get better. And that's a shame. Because they're the most high-profile and visible company in the world, and it would be fantastic if they were good. But they're bad. So I am rooting for AEW to be great. Or at least be good. It'll be something I can sink my teeth into. Because I'd love for there to be a high-profile, mainstream American promotion that doesn't suck. But this is so much fun. And the more lobs that the other side throws, the more that AEW should lean in. Because they have everything to gain from that. And WWE knows it. Vince didn't name them by name. He didn't use the letters AEW. He didn't say Tony Khan's name. But everyone knew what he was talking about. And he gave the wrestling media and show little dopey shows like the one you're listening to and Dave Meltzer and Wade Keller and all the wrestling media that matters way more than I do. Even though I'm the most compelling voice in wrestling media, I think we all agree on that. Fodder to talk about and discuss and dissect until the next AEW show. And to keep their name in the news. And it gave more reason for people to laugh at the hypocrisy of Vince McMahon. So keep leaning in. I want passive, aggressive immaturity from both sides. Because I'm a wrestling fan. And that shit's fun. And maybe you're too young and you don't remember the Monday Night War. Maybe you don't remember ECW, what's now known as Hardcore TV. It was just known as ECW back then. 2 o'clock in the morning, MSG Network, New York City. Where I lived. Maybe you don't remember Joey Styles and Paul Heyman and half the ECW roster taking insider shots 
at WCW and WWE when I was just getting into my, you know, newsletter reading era of my fandom. And I got a kick out of it because that shit was great. I got Duke the Dumpster Josie on one channel and I got Joey Styles taking insider shots on everybody on the other. I got Evad Sullivan on TBS, Duke the Dumpster Josie on WWE and ECW ripping them to shreds every week, 2 o'clock in the morning. It was fantastic. That's entertainment. And we're getting that back and it's exciting. And another sellout. So this is a real player. At this point, when you look at AEW, okay, I knew this one was going to sell out. Most of you listening probably knew this one was going to sell out. Are they going to be selling out three or four weeks into TV? That's the key. They're not going to keep running basketball arenas. But can they continue to sell out five, six, seven, four thousand seat venues? And I really hope they run that little amphitheater they ran for Fight for the Fall. And that's a tremendous venue. And I hope they run the cruise ship, as has been rumored. That'll be a cool look. Mix it up. Every Raw, every pay-per-view looks exactly the same. Fuck that shit. I hope AEW continues to be different, run different kinds of venues. Will they still be selling out four, five, six, seven weeks into the TV? That, to me, is the key to look at. I think the pay-per-views are going to do fine for a long time. They'll find a way to make those special. And because they're a brand new promotion, they still have brand new matches. Everything is fresh. There's nothing in the promotion that isn't fresh. Even Cody. What have they burned so far with Cody? The Dustin match that had to be done because the guy's like 50 years old. The Darby Allen match, which wasn't a big drawing match. And he's wrestling Sammy Guevara on TV. So even a guy who, who's had three singles matches already in four matches... They haven't burned anything off. That's of vital importance or that can draw money. People really get bogged down in the minutia of AEW booking and talk about all the mistakes they're making. Step back and look big picture. They haven't burned off a ton of money matches. They're selling out or coming close to selling out all of their shows. I have some minor complaints about the booking, but big picture they're doing a good job. The only thing that could stop AEW's momentum now is AEW. If they put on a shit television product, that is what's going to halt their momentum. And people are going to watch that TV and they're going to focus on all of the wrong and insignificant things. I mean, because it's as I tweeted the other day and it was something that everybody misconstrued. And it's fine. Well, not everybody. Most people agreed with it. Some people misconstrued it. Very touchy WWE fans misconstrued it. Is I've never seen anything micro-analyzed in all of my time watching wrestling than all things AEW. I mean, you know, these shows are going on and people are micro-analyzing, you know, Every piece of commentary that comes out of the commentator's mouths, the lighting, the, the camera shots, the, the matches themselves, the booking is dissected, who scores, like, it's just, you know, every minor comment that comes out of Cody's mouth, everything that Tony Khan says, everything that the Bucks say, every tweet, 
take a deep breath, step back, and look at the big picture. And so far, they've done everything right, for the most part. You know my gripes. And they've been a massive success. Only they can get in the way of that now. With a bad show. Because all of their shows have been pretty good. Their worst show was pretty good. Their best show was great. So that's AEW. I'm not going to... I could do three hours on, on just talking about AEW. It's a fascinating topic. ROH. They're running Global Wars, but with CMLL. Kind of raises your eyebrow. Then we find out that they were running that Toronto Super Show, which originally was announced with New Japan, CMLL, and NWA talent. Well, the NWA is out. New Japan is a giant question mark. And they're running their own tour in three ROH buildings, which all appear to be sellouts. Two of them are sold out already. The third may or may not sell out, but it's pretty much a no vacancy at minimum in Melrose. So now that Super Show, which was going to feature four promotions, might just be Ring of Honor and CMLL as well. But maybe some token New Japan participation. Gorillas of Destiny, who have basically been regulars the last couple of months. No one's going to get fired up about that. Maybe a couple stragglers that aren't doing anything important in Japan right now. Who knows? Or maybe no participation at all. So we have our first true indication that maybe New Japan is pulling away from Ring of Honor. We've all speculated that might end up being the case. Now we have some fi- we've got some definitive red flags here. So that's worth keeping an eye on. You know, I talked about this behind the paywall as we switch gears again to our next topic. I talked about this a little bit behind the paywall on the uh, Thursday TV reviews. Patreon.com slash Voices of Wrestling. Now is the best time to subscribe, by the way, because it's early in the month and you get full value for your dollar. Patreon charges on the first of every month, just like the Japanese streaming services. So get in early in a month. Never subscribe late in a month. Uh, subscribe early in the month. So it's a great time to get in. We put up two pieces of audio yesterday. We put up 40 total pieces of content in July. You are ripping us off by subscribing for $5. It's a ridiculous value. So subscribe today. Stop what you're doing. Pause this show. Go subscribe to Patreon. Coming up this month, more daily G1 audio. Rich Soldier's on with his Boys of Summer, SummerSlam main event reviews that have been very well received. Thursday TV reviews every Thursday. The Intelligentsia on Mondays when G1 is over or when time dictates. 
Random breaking news updates. Our last two breaking news updates were Dragon Gate rolling out English commentary and the potential Axis Impact deal falling apart. We were the first to report both of those stories. I'm very disappointed in Larry Dallas, by the way. And I hate to do this. And it's just a shame. But I know I'm talking about nine different things here. Um, but, you know, we talked about it a little last week and we praised his performance. And he did a great job calling Kobe World along Rich Bokini. And, um, you know, it's, it's no secret that we helped him out with that. And, you know, years ago, Larry Dallas... Um, was invited to fill in on the flagship one week when Rich wasn't available, uh, offered up his services. He was on Sirius XM at the time on Busted Open. I thought it would be a tremendous crossover opportunity. Maybe get a little plug on Sirius for the flagship to uh, plug his appearance. And Larry was doing really a great job. I thought he was tremendous on Busted Open. He's the best host they've ever had. I mean that. And I thought they made a big mistake when they let Bully Ray you know, leverage Larry off of the show, which was a bullshit move. But, um, and Bully Ray stinks, and Mark Henry brings nothing to the table. Larry, Larry Dallas, I know some of you may find that hard. He was tremendous on the show. But anyway, so he was going to appear on the flagship, and, um, you know, he blew me off. And I talked about it on the air, and we joked about it. And I, you know, I wasn't really overtly offended. I just, you know, it's whatever, you know. I tried to get a last-minute replacement. Uh, talked to a couple people. Wasn't able to make it happen. I did a solo show, no big deal. So it's kind of been a running joke since. And, um, you know, Larry, he, he, I guess he apologized. It's whatever. It was water under the bridge. So, uh, you know, Larry, when you know, I found, he found out that he was getting the, the Dragon Gate gig, he came to us, he asked for some help. We were more than happy to give it to him. Do not regret it at all. Gave us a little plug on the show. Much appreciated. Just, you know, all well and good. Uh, Case Low and Mike Spears. Mike Spears, you know, he, they wanted to have Larry come on, uh, open the voice gate. And I don't know if those guys want me to talk about this, but I, I don't care because I'm, I'm insulted. And, uh, you know, Larry committed to it, and then Larry ghosted on him and, and blew them off the same way he blew me off some years ago. And it's just, I'm not upset at Larry Dallas. I'm not mad. Um. But it is very disappointing that with all the work that our Dragon Crate, that our Dragon Gate crew did to help him out, that um, you know he wasn't able to pay it back and meet that one commitment that they were asking for in return to do a guest spot on their show and talk about Kobe World. And talk about Dragon Gate moving forward, as Larry seems to be back in the fold. It's just a shame. Um, you know, it's it's none of us feel great about it. Let's just put it that way. So, not air, not trying to air dirty laundry here. Although, though, I guess in effect I am, but it, it, it annoys me. It, it it annoys me. And um, no, I haven't spoken a word to Larry Dallas um, since maybe couple days after Kobe World and 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 definitely not since this cuz I I'm disappointed that he blew those guys off and they did a great show without him and you should all go listen to it 
the last to open the voice gate. I don't know. It's, uh, you know, what are you going to do? You get burned again. So we won't get burned a third time. I can promise you that. Shame on us, right? Anyway. What was I going to talk about next? I got wrapped up talking about the Patreon. Oh, Gunner Miller. Because I talked about Gunner Miller behind the paywall on the TV reviews this past week. This dope. So this guy, Gunner Miller, who you're probably saying, what? Okay, he's one of like 900 Gunners that are running around in Southern Wrestling. One of them is now in NXT, Jackson Riker. Okay, lots of X's, lots of Y's. He's the former Gunner from TNA. And then there's Gunner Miller, a Southern Independent wrestler. And he went on Facebook or Instagram or whatever the fuck. And uh, he did this long-winded post about how it's, it's, it's such a shame that a guy like Marco Stunt gets a contract while real pro wrestlers and real athletes such as Gunner Miller, who work hard, continue to remain unsigned. And it's like, you know, here's the thing. I'm not even a fan of Marco Stunt. I feel like his 15 minutes were up a long time ago. And I really have no use for him, to be completely honest with you. But there's no question that Marco Stunt is more marketable and more signable than Gunnar Miller. Who's a nice little wrestler. But he's like on an assembly line of nice little wrestlers who look and wrestle just like him and do not stand out and do not get over. Whereas Marco Stunt at least brings something unique to the table. And you can kind of understand where a company is coming from that wants to use Marco Stunt. And even if Gunner, Gunner Miller feels slighted that people he doesn't deem as talented as him or worthy as him are getting signed, it's the kind of thing you got to keep to yourself. You don't go blasting it out in public. You tell your friends. You vent to your wife. You tell other wrestlers. And you have a nice bitch session at, you know, a Waffle House somewhere about it. You don't go on social media and bury, you know, your, you know he's buried any chance he ever had of getting signed by AEW. Probably didn't have much of a chance anyway, but you can kiss that goodbye. He's got all kinds of wrestlers and promoters annoyed at him because Marco Stunt is very well liked. And I kind of get where he's coming from. I mean, you know, he feels like there's people jumping the line who are gimmicky and and aren't as talented as he is, no matter what I think of him. But listen, my man, you can't go public with that stuff. But here's the thing, and I got this idea from my pal Hype Gotti, Omaha Wrestling Hall of Famer Hype Gotti, Nebraska legend. And he and he's absolutely right. Gunnar Miller should be booked in every fucking indie next weekend 
right? And he should wrestle the skinniest, most unathletic-looking, non-traditional wrestler on the roster and beat the living shit out of him and then cut the same promo that he cut on Facebook on the mic and they should upload it to YouTube. How is no one taking advantage of this and making money off it now? Gunnar Miller should show up at the Scenic City Invitational and cost Marco stunt his match this weekend. And if that doesn't happen, everyone involved in that dropped the ball. Leverage this. And you know there's going to be people on Twitter and you know who they are. They're all going to whine and say, oh, well, you're letting this guy be an asshole and then turn that into making money and this and that. Who cares? It's wrestling. It's it's, it's pro wrestling. This isn't high art. And all he did was voice a shitty opinion. Okay? He didn't kill anybody. He didn't commit a crime. He just has a shitty opinion that he should have kept to himself. What are we supposed to do? Jail him? It's not a big deal. Why don't we turn this into something and make some money off of it? This should be like his gimmick now. An alpha male, what a wrestler should look like, D-bag heel, who terrorizes irony wrestlers. If I were running an indie, I'm booking Gunnar Miller this weekend, and that's what I'm doing with him. And I'm blasting it all over social media and YouTube. And trying to drum up a little public. Maybe it works, maybe it doesn't. I think it I think it would work. But the bottom line for Gunnar Miller is listen, man. Marco Stunt got over. You didn't. That's why he signed and you're not. I agree that Marco Stunt is gimmicky and there's not much there and there's a ceiling and I don't want to watch Marco Stunt wrestle. But here's what Marco Stunt's going to do for AEW. He's going to get in there with the fucking, you know, he's going to get in there and take big bumps from heels and get his ass kicked with the Jungle Boy. And the dinosaur guy is going to get in the ring and clean house and save his little buddies. And it's going to be a nice little fun little undercard prelim act until they're ready to flip the switch on dinosaur guy or they're ready uh, or Jungle Boy gets the necessary experience and are ready to flip the switch on him. Marco Stunt is going nowhere. Good for Marco Stunt getting his contract. That's fine. But he's, you know, in terms of moving up the card, I mean, he's going nowhere. I don't mean to fucking slight the guy. But I'm saying he's a preliminary wrestler, and that's fine. The world needs ditch diggers too. Okay? I understand that. But he's all right for that spot. I don't care about Marco's stunt, but I'm not offended he got signed. And the bottom line, Gunnar Miller, is Marco's stunt got over. And they've found a spot for him, which is perfect for him. You, Gunnar Miller, are just a guy who cannot get over outside of your 40-mile radius. And maybe it is bad breaks or a lack of breaks, but you need to be patient and keep working hard like everybody else does. And, you know, yeah, maybe Marco Stunt did jump the line. But again, he got over. 
And wrestling is about getting over. But I think Gunnar Miller can now leverage this bad publicity he's getting into getting over. And that's sort of the theme of the first half of this podcast. Lean into it. Turn this into business. And these trendy indie promotions will never do it because they don't want the backlash on. They don't want to get dragged on Twitter. They don't want the, you know, they don't want people to say, how can you book this guy? How can you let him, you know, turn being an asshole into making They don't want to deal with that. So, you know, it would have to be some low-key indie or some indie that just don't give a fuck that would have to book something like this. But I would absolutely... He, this guy didn't do anything wrong except have a bad opinion. That harmed no one. You think Marco Stunt is offended by this? He's counting his money. He's got his contract. And he's getting all of the sympathy from it. So anyway, Gunnar Miller's a dope, but, uh, you know. Hype God, he's got the right idea. Someone should, you know, make some money off or at least get some attention off of it. Let's move on. Couple notes from Japan, and then we'll talk about Triple Mania. Then I've got one more topic at the very end before we take a break. Come back with the Japanese business review for 2019. Kento Miyahara defeated Zeus last weekend in Osaka to retain the Triple Crown title. We'll get into the nuts and bolts of the of the uh, the the business discussion when it comes to this title match on the second half of the show, or you can subscribe voicewrestling.com slash or patreon.com slash wrestling, whatever the fuck it is, and uh, I did a detailed review of the entire show including taking a look at the business aspects, $5 tier. But I wanted to talk about the match a little bit. Kento Miyahara has been one of the five best wrestlers in the world this year. I mean, really, it's been Willow Spray, Kento Miyahara, Pac, Kota Ibushi, and maybe after this G1, Tomohiro Ishii. Maybe he's the fifth guy. Maybe David Starr is the fifth guy. Um, But, you know, those are pretty much your names. Maybe I'm forgetting one or two. I don't think I am. You want to throw Cavanario in there? I watched all of his stuff. I caught up on that. He's neck and neck with Laredo Kid to me as the top luchador this year in Mexico. I wouldn't put them at the level of those other six names that I just named, though. I'd put them a notch below, but, you know, whatever. You want to throw him in there, that's fine. But Kento Miyahara knocks it out of the park again against Zeus. I went four and a half on this. It's well worth your time. The story of the match was Kento desperately trying to lock on the straight jacket German. But Zeus, because he's a fucking beast and he's Zeus, I mean, he kept breaking the hold. Those gigantic arms. And all that power. There was a great strike sequence in this match where Kento landed one of those vicious knees and Zeus shrugged it off and hit a straight right. That'll be the most memorable spot of the match for me. There was a German uh, suplex, released German suplex, off the apron to the floor by Miyahara on Zeus, which was crazy and then eventually Miyahara wore him down wore him down locked on the straight jacket and that's just such a tense move because the fans know when he locks that in it's over 
Akira Tozawa used to use that in Dragon Gate. And I thought that was a great finish for him. And 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 Miyahara has really uh, capitalized. Miyahara is such a great worker. And he knows that the crowd responds once he locks those hands together. And, and then he get. And he always freezes with the guy. Like he'll get the he'll lock he'll lock it up, and then he gets the guy like halfway up, and you're not sure if he can get him all the way over. He did it with with uh, Suwama in a match earlier this year, and it's like Suwama's not a small dude, and he kind of held him there. And it's only probably in reality a second or so, but it feels like an eternity. Can he get him over? And then when he does get him over, and the guy's shoulders slap to the mat, it's all over, and he put away Zeus in his hometown, Zeus's hometown. Remember, one year before, Zeus beat Kento for the title in Osaka. This year, Kento successfully defends in the same city, albeit in a smaller building. But a really great match. On the same show, Hikaru Sato and Yusuke Okada. Yusuke Okada, keep an eye on that guy. I've been raving about him behind the paywall. He is, without a doubt, going to be the junior ace in All Japan. That's not a high bar to clear. Because all Japan's juniors stink. And they've stunk for years. None of them have any charisma. They all work in a very similar fashion. Uh, They're all very boring. Yusuke Okada is, without question, going to be the junior ace in all Japan. He's finally going to bring some electricity to that division. Okay? So they win the junior tag battle of glory. Of course, um, this was a given to me with Aoki passing away and this being Aoki's former tag team partner in Sato, and the guy replacing Aoki in the tag team in Okada. He wears the same colors as Aoki. He wrestles kind of similar to Aoki. kind of even looks like Aoki. So uh, they win the tournament. They defeat the Dragon Gate team of Kajitora and Yusuke Santa Maria, who to me were the best team in the tournament. Kajitora was the best wrestler in the tournament. Second year in a row that the Dragon Gate representatives in that tournament are the best team in the tournament. So... um, Nice job by Kajitora and Yusuke Santa Maria. They get all the way to the finals, but uh, lose to Sato and Okada. And keep an eye on Yusuke Okada. I'm telling you. I'm telling you, this guy is the real deal. I don't know if he's a star, okay? But he's a great wrestler. There's no question about that. He's going to be a great wrestler. And he showed so much personality on this tour. And I watched every show. And he's coming along a lot faster than I thought he would. So that was all Japan. Let's talk about Noah a little bit. They announced the blocks and the participants for the N1 tournament. The N1 victory tournament. That is the new name for the Global League. With the rebrand, they've also rebranded their tournaments. And this name fucking stinks. How bad is this? N1 victory, which, by the way, starts just a few days after the G1 climax ends. You can't come up with something that isn't that similar to to the biggest promotion in the country. N1 victory. You know what that sounds like? It sounds like what an unlicensed video game would call the G1. Well, we can't use G1 Climax. We'll call it the N1 Victory. It just sounds second rate right off the bat. 
So anyway, the N1 victory starts on August 18th after everybody's burnt out on the G1. But I'll be into it. Two blocks of five. It's not going to go on forever. Kato Kiyomiya, the GHC champion, is sitting this one out. He says he will face the winner on 11-2 in Sumo Hall. Good luck. I hope it doesn't bomb, but I think it's going to bomb. But I really hope it doesn't. But we'll talk more about that as we get closer to it. Let's take a look at the blocks. A block, Naomichi Marafuji, Takashi Sugera, Go Shiozaki, Masakita Mia, and Alexander Hammerstone of MLW. We'll talk more about that in a second. B block, Katsuhiko Nakajima, uh, Sho Taniguchi, of course, Maybach, Kano, Masaki Mochizuki of Dragon Gate, and El Hijo D. Dr. Wagner Jr., the son of Dr. Wagner Jr., the grandson of Dr. Wagner. Also, well, I don't know if he's officially representing MLW, but he has worked a lot of MLW lately. Anyway, Noah is now aligned with MLW. This was, uh, we talked about this briefly on the flagship last week because news broke as we were recording. But uh, that's the deal that Court Bauer was closing when he was visiting Japan some months ago. And I think that's a great relationship for both sides. Noah could use the infusion of fresh talent, that is for sure. And, um, you know, uh, it, it can't hurt for MLW, who uses a lot of, of great lucha talent, to start using some talent from Japan. I mean, I think that's good to add to the mix, too. And it's good for the young wrestlers on both sides, like Hammerstone taking part in this tournament, to get a little bit of experience. And if you haven't seen Hammerstone, if you're not, if you don't watch MLW, this dude improves every time I see him. He looks like a million dollars. He has a tremendous look, and he's getting progressively better every time. And I think he's going to have. To me, he's the most interesting person to watch in the N1. I want to see how he responds to a different style. I want to see how he does against some really great wrestlers. I mean, he's in there with Sugi and Marafuji and Go Shiozaki. I'm real interested in those matches and how he matches up with those guys and if he can have good matches with guys who can have good matches in their sleep. Or will he drag those guys down to, you know, his level? It's so interesting to me to see how Hammerstone does in this thing and to see how they treat him in the booking in a really tough block to see how this partnership gets. You don't you, you don't want to bring in your new partners, you know, rising young talent and have them go 0 and 4. I mean, he could beat Masakita Mia with no issue. I want to see how many points he scores against Marafuji, Sagara, and Goshiozaki. That's fascinating to me. And to me that is the better block and the more interesting block. Now in the B block Everybody and their mother, as soon as these brackets came out, circled the Nakajima-Mochizuki match. Holy fuck, I cannot wait for Katsuhiku Nakajima versus Masaki Mochizuki. That is my most anticipated match of the entire tournament. Without question. Easy. And you got Maybach. He's not Maybach anymore. But uh, you got Taniguchi there. He's a nothing. Um... El Hijo del Dr. Wagner Jr., I've seen very limited, only what he's done in MLW, so I don't have a strong opinion on him either way. I will say he didn't exactly blow me away when I saw him in MLW, but he seems like he's fine. 
And Cano, I mean, look, Cano's a former GHC champion. He gets the respect of being in this tournament. I totally understand it. In fact, when I look at this, aside from the outsiders, uh, Kitamiya and Taniguchi are the only two that haven't been GHC champion. So Cano deserves a spot in this, absolutely. But, and you know, Cano, Nakajima, and Mochizuki will have really good matches against each other. Taniguchi, he is what he is, which is not very good. And, um, you know, Dr. Wagner Jr.'s kid, we'll see. The A block, to me, is loaded. Especially if you like Masakitamiya, who I think is okay. A lot of people don't like him, though, and I get it. But uh, the A block is loaded. You know, it's top-heavy. And you have the intrigue of how's Hammerstone going to do. So, the question then becomes, who is going to headline Sumo Hall against Kaito Kiyomiya? And in looking at this, he's already faced several of these men in the tournament. He's beaten Marafuji. He won the title from Segura, and he beat him in a title defense. So maybe they want to, you know, Cano, he got his revenge against Cano. One year to the day of Cano knocking him out in Cork and all. So, you know, uh, Nakajima, I mean, you know, so it's like, where do you go? Pretty much everything's a rematch. He even beat Masakitamiya in a title defense. So anywhere you look, it's going to be a rematch. To me, the top draw in this company, uh, still and has been for a number of years, is Marafuji. Um, he never wants to be pushed. He has no interest in carrying the title. His body's breaking down. If I have to fill a big building, I, you might have to revert to Marafuji. I don't know if this is the spot to try to... I say make a new star, but there's really no new star to make. Everyone here has either been champion already or... Um, you know, has been around the block several times. And isn't in a position to take the jump to the next level. So, you know, I I think, you know, the Nakajima uh, match... It, it's like, okay, so... Nakajima, he just had a title shot a few days ago. Match I haven't seen yet. Um, you know, Segura had his in June. Marafuji had his in March. And like I said, he already beat Kano. He already beat Masakitamiya. So five of these dudes he already defended against. And he's beaten Segura twice. So to me, it's got to be Marafuji. I think... March to November is enough period of time that has passed to do the second match. And I think Marafuji is the best draw in the company. So, that's what I would do. We'll talk about Kiyomiya in depth, second half of the show, when we take a look at Noah's business. So, Triple Mania is this weekend. The big match, of course. Mask versus hair. Blue Demon Jr. versus Dr. Wagner Jr. It's a big match. Should have a ton of crowd heat. I seriously doubt Blue Demon Jr. is losing his mask. If he does, it'll be historic and it'll be a big story. And he's probably getting a shit ton of money. But I would expect uh, Dr. Wagner Jr. to drop that one and get that head of his shaved. 
Maybe that gray beard, too. Maybe they'll shave the beard. Remember, they're supposed to be L.A. Park versus Dr. Wagner Jr., the match they set up last year. And then Park did what Park does, and he just quit the company. A couple weeks later, that was the end of that. But Triple Mania, it's going to be a wild show. There's a lot of shit on here that has a chance to be really good in a wild, unruly way. I mean, it's a wild lineup. The semi-main is the rematch from Fighter Fest, Phoenix, Laredo Kid, and Pentagon Jr. versus Kenny Omega and the Bucks. As the Bucks in their never-ending feud with Phoenix and Pentagon Jr. They'll have their ladder match at All Out, but first the six-man here. Then there's Cain Velasquez, his pro wrestling debut. He's getting rave reviews from his trainer, Vinny Massaro. We'll see. He teams with Cody Rhodes and Psycho Clown in what has to be the most random button match of all time. Uh, uh, team, anyway. Cain Velasquez, Cody Rhodes, and Psycho Clown. That is a early 90s war level trio team. You know, when war would just have like, it'd be like Earthquake, you know, Doug Gilbert, and, you know, Warlord against Bob Backlund, Ultimo Dragon, and, you know, El Gigante. Like, that's what this, you know, Cain Velasquez, Cody Rhodes, and Psycho Clown. And they take on Taurus Tejano Jr. and a mystery partner. Women's title, Kara in a, what is this, a seven-way? Taya, Tessa Blanchard, Fabi Apache, Kara, Lady Shani, Chick Tormenta, and La Hijla. That, of course, also is a TLC match. This is just, I got to tell you, this is a train wreck show. We've got the Copa match, which uh, the announced names among them are La Parca, Pagano, Puma King, Arrowstar, Drago. I see a Verno on the poster. Throw him in there. Is that Joe Leiter? I don't know if that's Joe Leiter, but I hope it is. Um, nobody knows what this is going to be or what the rules are. So, you know, fits right in with the Triple Mania theme. So all of those guys will be in a match of some type. That's all I can give you. That's all we know. Uh, the trios titles are on the line, possibly. They're doing a big storyline with the trios titles, detailed in the great preview by the Cubs fan on VoicesWrestling.com. So we don't know who the champions are or if the titles are even on the line in this match, but at any rate, Golden Magic, Hio Del Vikingo, who is tremendous if you've never seen him, and Mr. Zizis Jr., Against Carta Bravo Jr., Moco Cota Jr., and not that Tito Santana. And then the third team is an Exoticos team of Mamba, Maximo, and Pimpinella Escarata. So, um, will the trios titles be on the line? I don't know. Turn on to find out. The deal here is Laredo Kid was originally part of the team with Vikingo and Mistazizis. 
and they were the champs, but then they did an angle where he gave the title to Golden Magic. Um, or it was now a four-way team or something with like the Freebirds rules. It's AAA. No one can follow this. So we'll see if Golden Magic and his version of that trio does in fact defend the titles. And now we're getting down card. We've got um, the four-way for the mixed tag team titles. Big Mommy and Nino Hamburglesa. Everybody seems to love that team. Cody Rhodes said he's a big fan of Big Mommy. Expect to see her in AEW at some point. For Sammy Guevara and Scarlett Bardot, Lady Maravilla and Viano 3 Jr. Australian Suicide and Vanilla. So those are your teams. Imagine Vince McMahon being presented with Viano 3 Jr. Or El Hijo de Dr. Wagner Jr. And then there'll possibly be a trios opener with some local kids. We don't know yet. There's nothing locked in stone. Both Dave Meltzer and Cubs fans speculate that there will be, either as a pre-show match or as the opener, something with, uh, you know, a bunch of your Dragon Bane, Astro Lux types who are also claiming they're on the show. And, you know, those are those, a lot, of, a lot of cases, those are those kids who just go in there and do a bunch of wacky spots, and it's always a lot of fun. So hopefully, uh, AAA follows the pattern they've been following on their shows, and they give those, those guys a spot, either on the pre-show or as the opener. But Triple Mania, listen, at minimum, it's always interesting, and sometimes it's really good. And without question... It'll have a train wreck quality to it, especially when you look at those matches and all the people involved and, you know, how convoluted some of those matches are. I'm more entertained by AAA than CMLL, and I feel dirty when I say that, but CMLL shows are very dry and they're oftentimes very boring. And, yeah, you know, I'll take a really good CMLL main event over a AAA main event because it's just, I prefer, you know, less plunder when it comes to those sorts of things and it's more traditional. But top to bottom, I always enjoy AAA shows more than CMLL shows. And I know that's not even a unique opinion anymore, but it still makes me feel dirty because AAA is a very dirty, sleazy promotion. With a lot of plunder and, you know, garbage wrestling and just fucking awful English commentary, which is always fun to talk about afterwards. If it is indeed Vampiro and Stryker, we'll see. There's some talk that it won't be. They claim they'll be there, but AAA hasn't said. Anyway, Cubs fan has a great preview of the show with excruciatingly great detail on voiceofwrestling.com. Final topic here before I take a short break and come back with the second half of the show is Harley Race, who passed away on Wednesday. Harley Race, I mean, you know, there's Hulk Hogan, The Rock, Stone Cold Steve Austin, Ric Flair, maybe a small handful of others. And Harley Race is right there when you're talking about, you know, the biggest stars in 
American wrestling over the last 50 years or so. I mean, he's right there. Throw Dusty Rhodes in, maybe John Cena. And there's Harley Race. Eight-time NWA world champion, depending if you want to count that quickie switch in New Zealand with Ric Flair at the end there, which would be his final reign. Lost it at the beginning of the tour. Uh, won it at the beginning of the tour in New Zealand and then lost it a few days later in Singapore at the end of the tour. For a lot of years, that wasn't recognized and a lot of sources still don't recognize it. But for the point of this conversation, an eight-time world champion. And the thing about Harley Race is Harley Race won his first world title in 1973. 46 years ago. Before the majority of the people listening to this podcast were born. Which means a good chunk of the prime of his career took place in the 1960s. Harley Race won his final world title in 1984. Pre-Hulkamania era, pre-modern era of pro wrestling is when he won his final world title some 32 years ago. 30, no, 35 years ago. So when you think about that, there's probably not a single person listening to this podcast who watched Harley Race wrestle in his physical prime in real time. I mean, the cutoff to have seen Harley Race on his final significant run in the late 80s with WWF as King Harley Race would be about 40 years old. For you to have real memories of watching that run in real time. And by that point in time, he was well past his physical prime and at the end of the line. He attempted to wrestle a little bit for WCW and maybe even whatever remained of the Central States territory when he left WWF at, in you know 1990 or whatever it was. But for all intent and purpose, his last real run was that WWF run as King Harley Race, which was a memorable run and a memorable gimmick, but he was past his physical prime by many years. The point I'm getting at here is there aren't many people around who have vivid memories of watching Harley Race in his physical prime in real time. And Harley Race is a wrestler who, for many years, and still maybe even to this day, I do not fully appreciate as the all-time great that people talk about him and when they speak about his reputation. I never really got Harley Race. And the more I dug into Harley Race and the deeper I dug, the more I felt foolish. Harley Race was a bomb-throwing, big-bump-taking machine. 
I mean, this dude threw bombs. And he took bumps that nobody was taking in his era, or very few people were taking. And I really think the problem with Harley Race and why, let's call the line 40 years old, why people under 40 may not appreciate Harley Race are because, one, all they know of him is that late 80s WWF run. And two, his most famous matches are simply not very good. And those are the Ric Flair matches. The Starcade matches. The awful match with the Gene Kaniski finish. With the bad finish. I don't think the Flair race matches were anything to write home about. And again, I wasn't there in real time. A little before my time. 1983. Nineteen eighty one through nineteen eighty three. But those matches didn't hold up for me, watching through modern eyes. And if you're under forty and you've been watching modern wrestling for your entire life, and how quickly modern wrestling has evolved athletically, and with more high spots crammed into the matches. There's a good chance that, like me, you didn't have a full appreciation for Harley Race. Your introduction to Harley Race was probably those Ric Flair matches. And your most vivid memories of Harley Race are probably those King Harley Race matches in the WWF against the likes of the Junkyard Dog. But if you dig deep on this guy, I promise you, you will find a bomb-throwing, bump-taking machine. And look, he doesn't have the look of a modern wrestler. The guy always looked old. Even when he was young, he looked like he was 50. With that poofy hair and receding hairline and mutton-chop sideburns and big belly and tattoos before they were trendy and only sailors and bikers had them, right? Handsome Harley Race was meant to derive heat because he was far from handsome. But he wrestled in an era where men looked like men and they looked tough. They looked like the toughest guy at the end of the bar. Harley Race, Dick Murdoch, Crusher, Bruiser, Dick Slater a few years later, Johnny Valentine. So again, through your modern eyes, you're not impressed with the way the guy looks. You're not impressed with his work when he was 50 years old in WWF. You're not impressed with the Ric Flair matches that were underwhelming. So I get it if you don't get Harley Race. Because I didn't get Harley Race for a long time. 
He's a guy you really got to dig deep on. There's a decent little match on the network right now that I watched before I recorded this against Dusty Rhodes from 1979 in Madison Square Garden. Now listen, it was Madison Square Garden and it was a rare NWA world title match in MSG with Vince McMahon on commentary and Howard Finkel doing the ring announcing, okay? So this wasn't a classic NWA world title match. They went in there, they had like 13 minutes. Dusty Rhodes, Harley Race in enemy territory, or at least foreign territory, maybe not enemy at that point. That's a much better idea of Harley Race, not the perfect example. The first WWF television match he ever had against Leaping Lanny Poffo, I believe it was from Madison Square Garden. Let me double check that, but it's on the network. It's on one of those house shows. Might have been from Boston. In fact, I think it's from Boston. Again, it's just a six or seven minute match. And even at that age, at the end of the line, you see what made Harley Race great. But when a guy was hitting his physical peak in the 60s, and winning world titles almost 50 years ago. And whose greatest exposure is an end-of-the-line run and underwhelming matches. The biggest matches of his career being underwhelming matches. And he doesn't have a look that would fit in in modern wrestling. I can understand why people didn't get Harley Race. And that Lanny Poffo match was from 6-14-86, by the way. And it was from MSG. And it is on the network. But what's interesting is for a guy who doesn't have a great modern look and who physically peaked 50 years ago, and didn't come off well through modern eyes with his most high-profile work. What I discovered when I dug deep on Harley Race was that, oddly, he fit in perfectly in a lot of environments today with those big bombs and with those big bumps. And if you're someone like me who didn't get Harley Race, I think you owe it to yourself to dig deep and give some of his work a shot. We'll be back with the second half of the show. All right, guys. Welcome back to the second half of the show. 
this half of the show is going to be entirely dedicated to a statistical analysis of the business trends in Japanese pro wrestling across all or most of the major Japanese promotions in 2019. No fear, no favor, no bias, just hard statistics with a little bit of analysis thrown in so we can see how all of the promotions are doing both against 2018 and how they're trending in 2019. So a lot of work went into this, uh, both by myself and some other contributors that we will credit along the way. And hopefully it will paint a picture of the business trends in Japanese pro wrestling through the first seven months of the year. And again, there are some people who cannot handle the truth. I'm sure some of this won't go over well uh, with certain circles of fans. And I mean, that's too bad. Um, We're just looking at it objectively. Facts only. So, uh, we'll start at the top with New Japan. And look, some of the news is good for some of these promotions. In fact, in very few instances is the news flat out bad. We have some promotions that have clearly stagnated or that aren't growing, but we don't have many places that are moving backwards. In fact, what I came away from this from is that There's a couple situations where companies are clearly growing. A couple of others are on good solid ground. And then there's a few others which very easily could be moving backwards, but they're at least holding their ground. And if they get lucky with a few stars here or there, things could be back moving in the right direction. But let's start at the top of New Japan. They are arguably the easiest company of all to analyze. Because... Last year, New Japan had their most profitable year of all time. Their most successful financial year of all time. You can pick any year in the 70s, any year in the 80s, any glory period, the 90s. You're not going to really look to the 2000s for any glory periods, but you get the idea. Last year was their most successful and most profitable financial year of all time. People, I know some of you don't want to accept it. I know some of you don't like New Japan. That's fine. Facts are facts. They are in a glory period right this second as we speak. This year, at least based on attendance, which is a huge chunk of their business, they are on pace to break all of the records they set last year and once again have another year that is the most successful financially and from a, uh, from a profits point of view of all time. So we're in the middle of a glory period for New Japan. There's no question about that. And we've reached a point where you can reasonably make a reasonable argument that Kazuchika Okada is the biggest star in the history of New Japan Pro Wrestling. You may not win the argument, and I may not agree with you, but I think you can at least make that argument, back it up with some data, and not come off looking foolish. That's where we are now with New Japan. So, taking a look at this year, and remember, they're going up against the most successful year they've ever had. 
They're on pace for a second consecutive year of that. They're on pace for a ninth straight year of business growth and attendance growth. Attendance growth at minimum. Nine straight years they're on pace for, which is insane. Uh, The Tokyo Dome was up. The G1 as we speak is up because I'm recording this in the middle of the tournament. But last year was, um, you know, the highest attended G1 of all time. And this one is set to break that again. I have been tracking the G1 attendance every night behind the paywall, voiceofwrestling.com. Well, patreon.com slash voiceofwrestling. Okay, so using that data and what Dave Meltzer had in the Observer this week, through 11 shows, the G1 was up 12.9% over what was already a record-breaking year last year. That didn't include data for Night 12. Night 12 was up to about 200 fans from the year before. Uh, now, the three Budokan Hall shows coming up next weekend, last year two of them were sellouts. It looks like only one of them is a surefire sellout this year. So that percentage might end up being cut by the end of the tour. I should also note that this weekend, both of the Osaka shows are already sold out. So those will hold up. We'll see how the other random tour stops do outside of Osaka and Budokan. But it looks like even if they don't get the two or three sellouts in Budokan, they definitely won't get three. But even if they don't get the two sellouts in Budokan, it looks like they will have growth over last year for the G1 tour, which was, you know, last year's tour was the most successful of all time. So, um, again, most of this news with New Japan is obviously good. If you want to see a summary of all of the attendance that I'm tracking on the G1 stops versus last year, but you're too cheap to cough up the five bucks for the paywall content on John Carroll's Twitter today, and I I say on Thursday, but look through the timeline, there is a nice summary of all of that information that I go over every day on the Daily G1 Audio in terms of this year's attendance versus last year's attendance um, for the G1. Anyway, uh, also going on in New Japan, obviously they have uh, six United States shows scheduled as of right now, five of which have sold out. I'm going to call the Melrose show a sellout because it's close enough and I think it'll crawl there. Um, the only show that they have on the slate in the United States that is not sold out is the third leg of the uh, Super J Cup Tour in Long Beach. It doesn't look like that one will sell out. So it looks like they'll get five out of six. Now, granted, these are all small to mid-sized buildings. The first two stops of Super J Cup are 1,000-seat auditoriums. Uh, ECW Arena, same thing. They'll probably do a little over 1,000 there. Hammerstein, that'll be well over 1,000. Um, that'll be the biggest of the five sellouts. And then we'll see what happens in Long Beach. The uh, Royal Quest show in London is close to a sellout. May or may not get all the way there, but is already considered a financial success. So a tremendous first-time effort in the UK for the Royal Quest show. Obviously, Dallas, you cannot call that a success. So there are some demerits on the board. But, um, you know, for... Uh, you look maybe at Dallas, you look maybe at if Long Beach doesn't do well, and those are really the only two, um, you know, minor negatives from a business perspective this year for New Japan. They're just, they just continue to be on a roll. And 
there's really not much else to discuss. They're in the middle of a uh, golden period in the company history. They're in the middle of uh, the most successful financial period in the history of the company. And uh, legends are being made. I mean, what else do you want me to say about New Japan business? They continue to be on the uptick. And they're knocking on the door of a decade straight a decade straight run of year after year, year over year growth, which is insane. Which is why I say, if you want to make an argument that Okada is the biggest star in the history of the company, I'll let you make it. I'm not confident enough to hop on board with you with that argument, but I don't think it's an absurd one, and I think that you can logically back it up with some uh, you know, statistical evidence that would work in your favor. But uh, that's it. New Japan's kind of boring to talk about. I'm tired of throwing roses at New Japan. We all know that they're a massive success. So, um, you know, if you want to talk about, if you want me to find some negative things, um, I think it's pretty obvious at this point that there's a cap on the size of the building they can run in the United States. They can draw five or 6,000 fans tops in the U.S., I'm going to keep MSG out of it. Joint show with Ring of Honor, WrestleMania weekend. Could they prove me wrong and go back to a WrestleMania weekend by themselves and sell out a basketball arena? Maybe. But the non-WrestleMania weekend data that we have suggests that, you know, they could do five or 6,000 fans tops. Cal Palace, 6,000. Dallas, you know, between five and 6,000. And then they could sell out these smaller buildings, lower four figures pretty easily in pretty much any market. So I think New Japan's lane in the United States is, you know, your one to 2,000 seat building. Run three or four shows on all those stretches, you can make a little money for sure. And, you know, Find those mid-sized five to six thousand seat buildings, and I think you can fill fill those or come close to filling those too. With their where they aren't at at this point is the ability to run these basketball arenas, and I do think I believe they're running Dallas again night one of the G one next year because they did make a little bit of money on that show. The optics though are horrible, and I can't sit here and call it a success when there's twenty thousand seats and five thousand of them are filled or forty eight hundred whatever it was. So. If you want to find an area to knock them, I guess, you know, that would be your best, you know, the U.S. expansion. And and look, they were conservative out of the gate, and that may have hurt them. I think they may have, you know, when excitement was still at its peak and it was still a novelty, would have done a better job filling the bigger buildings. But they were conservative at first. They weren't sure. They were simply dipping their toes. And uh, we may have passed the peak in, you know, their potential to draw audiences in the U.S. I don't know. But let's move on. You hear plenty of New Japan talk here and elsewhere. I want to talk about Noah. So a few weeks ago on the flagship, we did some Noah analysis. And uh, as we were talking about Keito Kiyomiya and his title reign, and the data we found was that they were um, basically... 
they were insanely flat versus the year before. The data at the time uh, in Cork and Hall, which is what I used, um, which, of course, you know, to me, and you're going to hear a lot about Cork and Hall as we go over these companies, because to me, Corican is the pulse of these promotions in Japan, and they would tell you the same thing. To really get a good feel for how these places are doing based on Corican Hall. And then you branch out from there. So in Corican Hall, the Kiyomiya title run, I mean, it was basically entirely flat. There was a plus four difference in average attendance, which is nothing. Four fans is nothing. Um, from, you know, the Kiyomiya title run versus same show comps from the year before. And when you took the whole 2018 into account versus the entirety of 2019 up to the point that, um, you know, I gathered the data, it was almost perfectly flat. They were down one fan versus 2018. You know how hard it is statistically to come up almost entirely flat to that degree? So basically the Kiyomiya title run to that point was flat. It hadn't grown the company, but they weren't running fans off either. We've had a few more shows since then, so I've updated the Corican data. So here's what we have. Since Kiyomiya won the title, they've run 11 shows in Corican Hall and drawn 13,111 fans for an average of 1191. The 11 shows previous to Kiyomiya winning the title drew 13,304 fans for an average of 1209. So they're down like 18 fans from the previous 11 shows in 2008, which again is nothing. It's totally negligible and again points to a company that continues to be flat versus the prior year. The entire year of 2018, Cork and Hall, they drew 21,497 fans for an average of, get this, 1,194 fans. So, Kiyomiya's average is 1191. The average last year was 1194. A difference of three fans. I mean, this company isn't losing or gaining anything. It's actually incredible how these numbers work out for Noah. If you want to look at, at uh, you know, since they rebranded, they've run seven shows in Corican since the uh, since the rebrand that have drawn 8,307 fans for an average of 1186. So again, you're right in the same neighborhood again. The rebrand has not run fans off, and the rebrand has yet to create new fans, which isn't fair because it just happened six months ago. But there you go. The three shows prior to the rebrand in Corican drew 3,830 fans for an average of 1276. So they're slightly down since the rebrand, they're slightly down year over year, 2018 versus 2019. You know, 19 fans or whatever it is. But, I mean, for all intent and purpose, if you're looking, that, looking at that on a profit and loss, it's, it, you know, they're, they're flat. The Kiyomiya title reign has not caught fire. And there are people that will tell you that it's a red-hot title reign and hugely successful. There is zero evidence of that. The company has not grown one iota, and in fact, if you really want to get granule, they've lost a few fans, but not to any significant degree that are worth bringing up. I don't care about 18 fans, on average. With that said, the Kiyomiya title reign has not been a negative. It's been an absolute neutral, to like the largest degree. Further evidence. The Great Voyage show last year 
in 2018, the March Great Voyage Show, drew 2,412 fans. This year's Great Voyage Show, just separated by days on the calendar, perfect comp, same building, 2,466. A difference of 54 fans. Again, totally negligible. I mean, you know, that's a couple people deciding to not hop in their car and go to the show. It doesn't matter. So again, it's just Kiyomiya's reign is just totally neutral. There is no positive or negative spin you can deduce at all. It's totally flat. The rebrand isn't hurting, and Kiyomiya isn't helping. Noah just continues to exist on the same plane as they did last year. So you can look at that two ways. You could say, all right, well, Kiyomiya isn't catching on. He's simply holding down the fort. Maybe we need to move away. Or you can say, all right, we're holding our ground. Keep the rocket pack on, and let's see if this guy catches on. So there's two schools of thought there. They're attempting Sumo Hall in November. I think that's very, very ambitious. And I think if it bombs, people are going to be very hard on Kiyomiya, perhaps unfairly. But we have to see how it plays out. But I don't think you can do an exercise like this and come up with a company that is so scary consistent one year to the next. But I'm not sure that Noah wants consistency. Well, not that I'm not I'm positive that they want growth. They need growth. And we have to be fair. There was tremendous growth from 2017 to 2018, when Takashi Sugera dominated the main event scene. Sugera grew the company. It was measurable and real. He took it to the level they're at now, which isn't exactly anything to brag about, but it got them out of a very deep and ugly gutter. Kiyomiya beating Sugera, you would think, would be a launching pad to another level. But it hasn't worked out that way. They've stayed on the exact same plane. To me, and this is where you get some editorializing here, to me, while you can make the argument that they should stay the course of Kiyomiya and attempt to make this star and see if he catches on, to me it tells me that the push has not worked. Because by design, that title reign of Segura, where he terrorized the company and was built up like a monster, by design, Kiyomiya's win, that was meant to be a launching pad. He beat the unbeatable champion. And it hasn't really been. The following month, he avenges his knockout loss to Kano in Cork and Hall. In a show which... You could probably figure out where I'm going by now. Drew almost an identical number of fans as the show the year before. 
on January 3rd in Cork and Hall. He avenged his KO loss to Cano and, and, and beat him. So they've done all the right things from a booking perspective. He beat the monster champion. He's avenged his losses. He's beaten Marafuji. He's beaten um, Nakajima. But he has yet to catch on. They're drawing the same fans. They've been, they haven't created any new fans. So, how much longer do you give him? And at that point, if he never catches on, have you ruined a red-hot 22-year-old prospect by going to him too early? I don't know if I'd go that far. I'd only be willing to say that if, if business was moving backwards. It's not that fans, it's not that the current fans are disinterested in Kiyomiya. It's that he's not drumming up interest from outside the existing fan base. So, we see how the rest of the year plays out with Noah. Let's move on to All Japan. And Gerard Detrolio did a tremendous attendance analysis of All Japan on our website. The article is still up. And a lot of the data I'm going to talk about uh, all, a lot of this work was done by, by Gerard. Some of it by me, but most of it by him. So let's talk about All Japan. This is through, uh, from January to the end of June, is what we're going to look at and compare 2019 to 2018. Average All Japan attendance in 2018, first six months of the year, was 666 fans. This year, 617 fans. That's a 7.4% drop. So attendance is down overall, 7.4% through June. Of course, it's not clue July, uh, so th- this is through June, so keep that in mind. But they're, they're, I, I took a glance at July, and it wasn't going to change the data tremendously, so we're going to roll with these numbers. The Champion Carnival in 2018 drew an average of 788 fans per show. Champion Carnival 2019 drew 661 fans per show. So the Carnival was down 16%. They were down in Osaka. They were down in Nagoya. They didn't even bother running Sendai. Uh, hold that thought. There's more on that later. The first two Corricans of 2019 of the, uh, of, the, uh, of the carnival were down. The third one, that one held steady. But, you know, that's your final. The first two were down against the year before. So the champion carnival was significantly down from the prior year in 2019. When we look at Corican overall, 2018, averaged 1,426 fans, okay? Uh, 2019, 1,429 fans, negligible difference. So they're doing basically the same exact business in Cork and Hall this year versus last. Gerard did note, okay, the June 18th show popped an unusually high number because it had a Hikaru Sato versus Suke Okada main event which really acted as a de facto Atsushi Aoki memorial show because it came after his death. So they did get a little bit of a bump, which you know they, they weren't expecting or planning for with that show, but listen, to me it counts. It happened, it is what it is. Unfortunate events may have helped bump that number. But um, you know, either way, 
even if you throw that number out, let's say they did 400 less fans, you're still going to have a negligible difference between the averages in 2018 and 2019. So Corican is holding up. Corican hasn't been uh, part of the problem for all Japan. So um, overall, they're down. Champion Carnival didn't perform. But I want to go back to the idea that they didn't even bother attempting to run Sendai for the Carnival this year. And that seems to be a trend that All Japan has recognized. They've given up on some of their bigger buildings. Last year, 2018, they ran Osaka Bodymaker 1 for the, 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 the long-anticipated... Um, they, they built it up for, for at least a year. Zeus's title challenge and title win over Kento Miyahara. They ran Bodymaker 1 and draw 2,458 uh, 24, fans, which was a so-so number. You can't call it a success. Um, I wouldn't call it a dismal failure for what All Japan was at the time, but it wasn't any kind of raging success. Zeus had one title defense in between and then lost the title back in Yokohama Bunka in a show that did under 2,000 fans. It did 1999 which is a disappointing number, a slightly disappointing number for Yokohama. As we discussed a few moments uh, ago when we were talking about Noah, Noah usually does about 2,400 fans in Yokohama. And all Japan, um, you know, usually... T- 2,000 to me, that's the cutoff for, this, for promotions of this size in Yokohama. So the Zeus story last year, the win in Osaka, and then, you know, losing it back to Miyahara, I mean, it, it didn't work the way I think anyone expected that it would. It was slightly disappointing. So this year, they come back to Osaka, where, of course, Zeus is from, which is why they thought they could do a nice job in Bodymaker 1 last year. This year, they come back for their yearly stop in Osaka. They do the Zeus-Miyahara match again, which... You're not going to do as well going back to the same story, number one. Number two, uh, last year, people kind of figured that Zeus was going to win, so there was more excitement there. This year, it didn't make any sense for Zeus to win, so there was less excitement from that perspective, too. But it's telling that they went back to the same storyline. They have completely run out of ideas at the top of the card. They have completely run out of people for Kento Miyahara to defend the title against. He defended against Yoshitatsu, of all people, in Korokin Hall a couple of months ago. There is no depth at the top of the card in All Japan. It's a major problem that everybody recognizes. Anyone who's being fair recognizes. They're trying to get Nomura and Lee off of the ground. They had a lot of momentum coming out of Champion Carnival with those two guys, but then to me, they squandered it away with the booking in Osaka by having them lose to the Violent Giants and then Nomura score a meaningless banana peel pin over Dylan James instead of definitively beating I talked about it at length behind the paywall. So there's no depth at the top. There's no new challengers. This promotion is being held together by Kento Miyahara. There's nothing else there. Zeus has never sparked Osaka like they thought he could. Miyahara's out of challengers. He's wrestled guys like Suji Ishikawa and Suwama a billion times. You're going to get diminishing returns on those matches. And as a result, 
we're seeing some slippage. Over 7% down for the year. Carnival down 16%. Osaka. They didn't even bother attempting Body Maker 1. Why would they? It didn't work out last year. That's your confirmation that the number last year, doing 24.58 for the Zeus win, was not a good number. Because they didn't bother going back this year. They ran the smaller building back-to-back nights instead. So for all of these dopes arguing with me, that last year was a success in Osaka, or it was okay for a promotion of their size, or making all these excuses, the promotion themselves are telling you that they did not do well in Osaka last year. Because they didn't attempt to run the building again. And they put 583 people in Bodymaker 2 the first night and 886 the second night, which they called a sellout. Which by their smaller setup, sure, they sold all of the seats. But the real super no vacancy in Osaka 2 is about 1,100 fans. And they did not even feel confident. Think about this. Okay? They did two shows in Osaka this year versus one last year and drew 1,000 less fans. Yes, they ran a smaller building. That's kind of the point, dummies. They couldn't run the bigger building. They didn't do well last year. So they drew 1,000 less fans this year in Osaka than they did last year. That's number one. Cannot be viewed as anything but bad. Okay? And on top of that, they weren't even confident enough to set the building up for 1,100 fans. They didn't think Zeus can do 1,100 against Miyahara this year after he did 2,400 last year. And they set the building up for 900. Fantastica Mania in February, 1,100. Dragon Gate has done 1,100 in Osaka 2. Dragon Gate does 800 in Osaka 2 with nothing house shows. And they exceed it when they put on anything meaningful. You cannot spin what occurred in Osaka last week as a success. You cannot spin it as anything but a negative. I'm sorry, but we talk facts here. And dick-tucking and running the smaller building in Osaka is one of multiple examples of all Japan not having confidence to run bigger buildings anymore. Similar to not running Sendai in the Champion Carnival this year. And not having run Sumo Hall since what, 2017 or 2016? They've become a small building promotion. And the only difference at this point between all Japan and Noah is one company has Kento Miyahara and the other one doesn't. And quite honestly, if you removed Kento Miyahara, I'm not so sure Noah is outdrawing them in Korokin and elsewhere. They're already outdrawing them in Yokohama. All Japan is being held together by tape and Kento Miyahara. And that's why you're seeing things like Junakiyama stepped down as president, quote-unquote, you know, resigning himself. Come on. 
Read between the lines. A change was needed. They plateaued. And now there's a slight decline. And they've got to nip it in the bud. The only way they're going to do that is by creating stars. Nomura and Lee has to work. It's too late to start on someone else. They've got the ball rolling on these two. They've got to see it through and it has to happen. And you're not going to get those guys over by losing to the ancient 40-plus-year-old violent giants. We're a tremendous tag team, but it's time to put the young guys over. You don't have time. You do not have time to slow play this. They should have won those titles in emphatic fashion and then destroyed Bomber the next night. What are you doing? What are you waiting for? Yeah, Nomura's probably going to win Royal Road, and he's going into it with none of the momentum he had from the carnival. And forget Lee. That guy has the charisma of the lamp I'm staring at across the room. I mean, forget it with him. I give up. I had hopes. Guy has no charisma. He was a ghost on this last tour. A ghost. You're talking about a guy not taking an opportunity. Nomura shows fire. I'm all about Nomura. I just don't look. I, the guy wants it. He clearly wants it. I just don't know if he's good enough. If he's if he has the potential to be a big enough star. And it's a shame because I wish he was a no-brainer. I wish he was the next Kento Miyahara. Maybe he will be. I just don't know. Lee, forget it. He's 30 years old. He's got no charisma, and he doesn't look like he wants it. Can you show some fire for once? I mean, the most significant thing he did on the last tour was drop Suji Ishikawa on his head because he couldn't hold him on a gut wrench suplex and nearly kill the guy. So yeah, if you want to sit in a room like the this is fine meme and pretend that all Japan doesn't have some problems right now, go ahead. But the trends say something very different. And the company themselves are telling you something very different when they've quietly stopped going to some of these bigger buildings. And when their president, quote-unquote, resigns, quote-unquote, steps down on his own. Okay. Let's talk about Wrestle 1. What I see here when I look at the data is a company that Strong Hearts absolutely sparked. And now we're starting to see signs of the fizzle. Not so coincidentally, Strong Hearts have now moved on in their, uh, you know, barrage of invasions. It was DDT, Wrestle 1. Now they've moved on to Big Japan. Because I think all sides recognize that there's not much more you can do. And the program is cooling off between Stronghearts and Wrestle 1. I'm sure T-Hawk will lose that title shortly. But let's take a look at the trends. Conveniently enough, the first Corican of the year, T-Hawk beat Ashino for the title. That show did a tremendous number, 1,224 fans. That's a tremendous number for Russell 1. 
February uh, with a strong hearts uh, main event at top 1096. March they did 754. April 1113. Uh, that was with Yuji Kondo becoming the number one contender. May 1335 for the T Hawk title defense against uh, Shuji Kondo. Uh, June they did uh, 890. July they did 902 and August an ugly 677 in a show that kind of got torn apart and had to be reshuffled, but 677 nonetheless. Uh, the trends I see here is shows that Ashino has main evented uh, have not done well. I mean, outside of the, the title loss to T-Hawk, he main evented the last two shows um, and was in the semi-main event in the Grand Prix in um, in the June show as well, so you can kind of throw him in there. And the last three Corkins have done sub-1,000. So, um, look, I love Ashino. But, you know, it's very clear that Strong Hearts came in and took Wrestle One Business to a new level. And, you know, with Ashino back on top here in recent months, the Corkins have not done well at all. Again, I'm just dealing in facts. These are just numbers. I, I didn't make them up. So I know some people don't want to hear that. I don't want to hear that. I like the guy. But just analyzing all of this, you know, uh, Strong Hearts and T-Hawk, Give a little credit to T-Hawk, okay? He's drawn the two biggest Corkins. Now, granted, those were title matches. But listen, title matches can bomb, and T-Hawk has not bombed. So, uh, let's take a look, bigger picture. 2018 through the first eight Corkins. So, this is um, equal comps. And Wrestle One's easy because they run one a month. So through the uh, so through eight shows in 2018, they drew 8,054 fans for an average of 1,066 fans in 2018. In 2019, through the first eight Corkins, they've drawn 7,991 fans for an average of 998. So they've slipped under averaging a thousand fans and you can really look at the last three months where that slip has occurred what does this tell us that the strong heart storyline is starting to fizzle out now to be fair we haven't had strong hearts on top in those three months it's been ashino so t-hawk eventually has to come back he's got to defend the title or lose the title so we'll see i mean if if t-hawk comes back with a big title defense and pops another 1,300, 1,400 fan house in Corrigan, then maybe the Stronghearts thing isn't fizzling out, but it's either starting to fizzle, or it's the only thing that's drawing for the company. Either way, that's bad news. The trend is clear. They do their worst Corrigan houses, and Corrigan's their big show. Uh, they do it once a month, that's where they do all their major bit. They draw their worst core when Strong Hearts isn't around. So, whether that's an indication of the storyline running out of juice, or whether it's an indication that, you know, Strong Heart, I think, clearly is, is you know, the drawing element in the company right now. It's not a Shino, unfortunately. So, um... You know, we'll see what happens if Stronghearts completely moves over the Big Japan. 
If T-Hawk drops the title and they, you know, move their business over to Big Japan, who could certainly use the help, we'll get into that in a minute, we're going to get a clearer picture of what that Stronghearts invasion of Wrestle 1 really meant long term. Based on what I'm seeing, it may result, the end result may just be that Stronghearts was able to pop Wrestle 1 while they were there, and then they go away and Wrestle 1 is right back where they started. But we'll see. But I don't like the trends, and I don't like what I'm seeing recently. Speaking of Big Japan, Big Japan's a disaster. Um, it's the worst booked promotion maybe in the world. Um, Big Japan Core is the worst streaming service in the world, bar none. Most people would agree. They run bad Cork and Hall shows. They run some of their biggest matches on spot shows, that, and then those matches don't end up making tape. I don't know what's going on in Big Japan, but it's not good. The strong division hasn't been good in like two years. The death division was on fire last year with Takeda. They moved the title off of him towards the end of last year. And while the death still draws better than the strong, it certainly doesn't have the hype or the, uh, or you know, it doesn't have the hype they had last year. So they've taken a hit there. Um, Corkins in July... You know, Cork and Hall did 1,508 fans in July. But here's the problem. That's two shows. They did a show that drew 610 and another show that drew 898. So that's the state of Big Japan right now. 610 fans in Cork and Hall. I mean, the 898's bad enough. 610. So you can see why they gave Shima a call. Shima shows up and business picks up. Some of the best YouTube numbers DDT ever did was when Shima and Stronghearts showed up. I just went over how Stronghearts is basically carrying Wrestle 1. And there's huge declines in their Corican numbers when Stronghearts isn't around. So yeah, I, you know, if I'm Big Japan, I would have made that phone call too. Shima has a nice thing going here. He's going to run out of promotions to invade. I mean, what's next? Zero one. Maybe by then things will fucking warm back up. You know, I think the big money is invading Dragon Gate. But since they completely erased Shima from their anniversary show, I don't think that's happening anytime soon. So Big Japan is just an absolute disaster. They've got no buzz. They're doing bad business. The booking is still an absolute fucking crime scene. So what are you going to do? Big Tom Fishy, Thomas Fishback, put together some numbers here. You look at uh, overall world title defenses. And for the purposes of this, we're going to use the Big Japan Deathmatch. Since that seems to be the stronger push title this year. And... Uh, we're looking at DDT, NOAA, All Japan, and Big Japan. So we're going to leave Dragon Gate and New Japan out of this for obvious reasons. They're both well ahead of the pack. Um, and yes, I'm someone who slots Dragon Gate above DDT because they can they can draw all over Japan, whereas DDT is a Tokyo promotion. Um, so DDT, eight title defenses this year, averaging 1,702 fans. NOAA, five title defenses, averaging 1,656 
All Japan, six title defenses, averaging 15.64. Big Japan Deathmatch, five defenses, averaging 8.80. This is what I'm talking about. Even the Deathmatch, which carried them last year, has cooled off considerably this year. And they haven't been able to reinvigorate the strong because the best matches aren't making tape. Big Japan Core is an awful service. Big Japan is a disaster. If Shima and the Stronghearts can work their magic in Big Japan, okay, then I got to be honest, New Japan needs to give them a call. So anyway, that's all I have on Big Japan. We'll do a run through of zero one two. This is a quick and easy one. Zero one is zero one, but good for them. They had a cork and sell out a few uh, 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 last week with a Jushin Liger retirement match. So pat on the back to zero one. Otherwise, it's business as usual in the Japanese promotion that just sort of exists, makes tape ten times a year with half of those shows clipped. And nobody really pays attention to besides me and like three other people. So nicely done, zero one on your cork and sell out. I've got nothing else to add. DDT. Last year they averaged eleven hundred and thirty-three fans in Cork and Hall. This year they're up to twelve twenty-two. That is slightly inflated by a monster super no vacancy sellout um, around the time of Wrestle Kingdom where they did 1,750 fans. But again, and that's a discounted show too with very cheap tickets. But either way, you want to throw that one out. You know, they'd still probably up, probably be up a little bit in Corican, but nothing to write home about. It's basically business as usual in DDT. They're owned by a very good company, and they get very good support from that company. This is not a you know Sinclair ROH situation. The company that owns DDT is very much behind them. They just ran their DDT show with uh, free atten- uh, free admittance. They didn't charge for tickets. I think that's stupid. I don't think it's a bad sign or anything from a business perspective, but. I wouldn't have done. I wouldn't have given away DDT for free. I would have. I, I'm sorry, Peter Pan for free. I would charge people. To, I, the idea is okay. Let's expose thousands of people to our product for free and give them a blowaway show. By all accounts, it was a blowaway show. So 3,500 people or whatever it was saw this blowaway show, and the idea is okay. We can turn them into ticket buyers. But I don't believe in that strategy. I think if you give away free tickets, and I think Dave Meltzer alluded to this as well in The Observer a couple weeks ago, people don't take it seriously and they don't see value in what they're receiving. A lot of people won't even bother to show up. And, uh, you know, you're really just denigrating your own product. You're telling people, hey, you know, it isn't worth anything. So it's an interesting strategy. I just don't think it's one that will work. 
And I think they would have been better off just filling up that, you know, Ota Ward gym or wherever it was. Is that where it was? Let me look it up. Yeah, the Ota Ward gym in Tokyo. I think they should have just, you know, filled the place up with paying customers. But, you know, they're in a strong position where, obviously, they don't even need that. They could take a chance like this and do a free show with their, arguably their, you know, one of their two or three biggest shows of the year and do a complete blow away show where they give a lot away for free too, which tells you the standing they have with their parent company and the solid footing and the solid ground that they're on. I don't worry about DDT at all. It'd be nice if they could expand outside Tokyo, but they're obviously doing a nice job in the little lane that they have. I'd put them as the number three promotion in Japan behind New Japan and behind Dragon Gate. A resurgent Dragon Gate, who we're going to transition to now, who can draw everywhere in Japan, across the country. I will say this too, let's throw this in for DDT. Sold out show in the United States. Yes, small room, laboom, I get it. Less than a thousand. I understand that. Still, nice little feather in their cap as well. WrestleMania weekend. Transitioning over to Dragon Gate. Kobe World just did 5,365 fans. Last year's Kobe World was a reported 4,962. That, of course, was heavily papered, and the number was bullshit. Dragon Gate had a very embarrassing year last year, okay? They normally, in you know that building, would report an exorbitant number. The fact that they only reported 4,962, and you know there were reports from people in the building as low as uh, 3,000 fans. I don't know if it was that low, but those were the low, the low estimates were 3,000. So they claimed 4,962. It was heavily papered either way. We all know the troubles that Dragon Gate went through last year. Losing Shima, losing Akira Tozawa, losing uh, Shingo on the back end of the, you know, later on. So, you know, they had a rough year. But this year they have bounced back to a tremendous degree. This is why Pac is a legitimate wrestler of the year contender under, under you know, any way you slice it, any kind of criteria you want to use. They bounce back in Kobe. I got some good numbers from uh, Iron Mike Spears concerning Dragon Gate. Open the voice gate. I mentioned in the first half of the show that you have a new show up with Case Low that you should go listen to. But uh, Dead or Alive was slightly up from the year before. Remember, last year's numbers were, were you know, bullshit. So it was probably way up. Corkin, their sellout streak in Corkin ended last year. This year they have, what is it, um, three super no vacancy full houses in Corkin in six tries. A couple other super no vacancies. Oh, I'm reading the wrong column. Yeah, three super no vacancy full houses in Corkin this year in eight tries and a couple of super no vacancies. Long gone are the days where they just claim 1850 every time out in Corrigan. Now, those were legit sellouts, but last year the sellout streak ended, and this year we're reporting actual numbers. 
So for Corican, we've got six, uh, 1615, which was a no vacancy, 1780, super no vacancy, full house, 1699, 1825, super no vacancy, full house, 1666, 1638, 1770, super no vacancy, full house. Dragon Gate is back. And you can compare those Corican numbers to the other companies we talked about. They're smoking them. They're smoking everybody. And they're right there with New Japan. Dragon Gate was the king of Corican, even while New Japan has been hot. And they've reclaimed their crown. So I don't understand the argument that DDT is the number two in Japan. It doesn't add up for me. Dragon Gate smokes them in Corican, and they can draw all over the country, as opposed to just Tokyo. So my firm standings are New Japan, Dragon Gate, DDT. And this idea that all Japan is number two that Dave Meltzer and Fumi were shooting at. That, total nonsense. How anyone can think that All Japan would be above Dragon Gate or DDT is beyond my comprehension. I don't understand where you're coming from. I'm not so sure All Japan is above Noah. Going to my head, I'm slotting All Japan 4th and Noah 5th. And of course, this isn't even taken into consideration stardom who I'm leaving out of this. But all Japan is, hey, come on. They can't draw the houses that Dragon Gate or DDT draw. What are those guys talking about? Meltzer is normally smarter than that. I, he should have called out that bullshit because that's, it's not even close. Dragon Gate and Osaka 2, as I noted earlier when we talked about all Japan, they do true super no vacancies in Osaka too. They did an 1,133 house in March. They did 930 fans in January. They routinely do over 800 in Osaka too. Just random house shows, you know? This isn't all Japan stacking it with a triple crown match. So, I mean, you know, to me, Dragon Gate's all the way back. Well, not quite all the way back, but Dragon Gate is almost all the way back. They're all the way back in Corican. They got a super no vacancy full house in February and, uh, you know, the Hakata Star Lanes, the last show. Special circumstances there, but hey, listen, it counts, just like the Motorist Insurance Group and Brick Street Insurance have come together to create a better one-stop shop for agents and policyholders, encircling you with coverage at every step in life's journey. We are now in Cova Insurance.